Welcome to Shiloh Church. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you are in the Jacksonville, Florida area, please join us for worship or watch our services online at shiloh.church. Thank you. Our own understanding to acknowledge you in all of our ways that you may direct our path. Be our teacher now. Open our understanding that we may comprehend the scriptures. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory we pray. Guide my thoughts, govern my words so that everything I say would be consistent with sound doctrine. And as the seed of the word is planted, planted in water that is, would you make it grow for your glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to approach our message a little different than the norm. Most weeks, I read one text and try to explain and apply one text. This morning, I want to preach more of a survey message under this title, What the Bible Says About Debt. This month, we've been talking about Christian generosity. If you are a guest with us today, we're glad to have you. And let me just, as a disclaimer, say, don't freak out. We don't talk about money every Sunday here. But we are beginning a campaign that we're calling Back to the Future as we are trusting God to help us three years to pay off our mortgage here on our church facilities and to prepare us for the work ahead that God would call us to do. We have been addressing this for several weeks in terms of trusting God and living generously. This morning, I want to just address another matter because it's hard to give generously when you are under a mountain of debt. So this morning, I want to talk about what the Bible says about debt. I'll point you to several scriptures along the way, and I hope you'll have a pen with you to just jot down some important references that'll be a help to you, I trust, in the days to come. What the Bible says about debt. So a man was walking along the beach one day, and to his surprise, a figure just darted out of the water and making all of these exotic movements in the water. And then as suddenly as he darted up, he went under the water again for what seemed to be an eternity. And then suddenly he darted up again, twisting and turning and thrashing like nothing the man at, on the beach had ever seen before and frankly, he was impressed. The man darted up again. He quickly yelled out, how did you learn to swim like that? The man answered back, I'm not swimming, I'm drowning. Unfortunately, this is how many people live. 
from the outside looking in, it seems like they have it going on. But in reality, they are drowning in debt. This is not God's will for anyone who trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and this is not God's will for the church of Jesus Christ. God wants His people to be swimming in blessings, not drowning in debt. But you cannot learn to swim if you do not understand what the Bible says about debt. So, I want to address the subject. What does the Bible say about debt? By way of introduction, let me answer simply, not much. The Bible says a lot about money in general. In fact, there are more references to material possessions in Scripture than there are references to faith or prayer. Jesus Himself said more about money matters than He did about heaven and hell combined. Yet, debt is not a dominating theme in the Scriptures. So, it would be no, it would be no surprise if you have been in church for years and never heard a biblical message on the subject of debt. Truth is that sound doctrine emphasizes a subject only to the degree that Scripture emphasizes that subject. Yet, the fact that Scripture says little about a subject is not reason to diminish what it actually says about a subject. Admittedly, the Bible says very little about debt, but what it says is important for us to understand and obey. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, to Satan. Jesus told the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God is sufficient for both life and faith. Scripture can teach us how to live with God in heaven, but it can also teach us how to live for God on earth. The biblical instructions for godly living include proper financial management, and it is foolish to ignore or reject what the Bible says about money management, especially what it says about debt. Ron Blue wrote that getting into debt is as easy as sliding down an ice-covered mountain. Getting out of debt is just as difficult as climbing that same mountain. How does one avoid falling down the ice-covered mountain of debt? How does one trek one's way up that mountain to debt-free living? These are the questions I want to answer in this message. I am not a financial planner, advisor, or guru, and I don't play one on TV. I am a Christian pastor with stubbornly biblical convictions. My pastoral vision can be stated in the words of 3 John chapter 4, it's only one chapter. 3 John verse 4 says, 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. My heart's desire for your family and our congregation is that we are walking in the truth. So this morning, I wanted to say a word to us about the biblical truth concerning debt. I want to lay before us five biblical principles for dealing with debt, five principles for dealing with debt. Here's the first, and I admit the first is not so much a biblical principle as, if, as it is a basic definition. But let's start there. Number one, debt is owing more than you can pay. What is debt? It is simply owing more than you can pay. That easy answer must not be assumed. Bondage to debt easily happens when you misunderstand the essential nature of debt, what debt is. Debt is owing more than you are able to pay. That has nothing to do with whether or not you are making payments or whether or not you make your payments on time or whether at times you are even able to double your payments. Debt is about owing more than you can own. If you do not have the resources to satisfy all of your financial responsibilities today, you are in debt. There are several kinds of debt. There is most commonly credit card debt. Church, you do know that Visa and MasterCharge and American Express are not your friends giving free money away. These are for-profit companies that make money by user fees and interest payments. They are banking on the fact that you cannot and or will not fully pay your bill in full every month. The average American has multiple credit cards with thousands of dollars balance that they are only making minimal payments on if that. There is consumer debt, secondly, which is close to credit card debt. Consumer debt is debt owed as a result of purchasing goods that are consumable rather than appreciative, like food and clothes and vacations and electronics. Even cars would fit under this category. That's a pretty brand new car, but it automatically loses value the moment you drive it off the lot. Thirdly, there is mortgage debt. Mortgage debt is, of course, debt associated with buying a house. Owning a home is a part of the American dream, but we must not act as if it is God's dream for us. The road to home ownership usually involves a commitment to decades of debt. It is admittedly a debt on an item that will most likely increase in value over the years, but it is debt nonetheless. Fourthly, there is what you would call investment debt. Debt made in investing in a business, to build a business, to develop a company. It will bring profit in return is the plan, but it is still debt nonetheless. Again, there are different kinds of debt, but the nature of debt is the same. Debt is owing more than you can pay. Secondly, debt is a spiritual matter. The second thing Scripture teaches us is that debt is a spiritual matter. And I would just, I would just lay this before you as a 
general principle. Money is spiritual. Money is spiritual. When I was a young pastor at my first church, I was shocked to hear church people talk about a business side and a biblical side to church or a practical side and a spiritual side to church. I think I understood what they were trying to say, but I just felt grieved to hear that. It just felt dangerous, even though I did not know how to respond to it. And and the first response God gave me was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The A part of Proverbs 3, verse 6 says, in all your ways acknowledge Him. We are to acknowledge God in everything. God does not give us the right to have some areas where we got to talk to Him about and other areas where we can do what we want to do. God wants us to acknowledge Him in all our ways. And faith acknowledges God in all our ways, including financial decisions. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Luke 16, verses 10 through 13? This passage weighs on me so heavily because when, as a young Christian, I began to study the subject of financial stewardship, what it means to manage what God gives me, Luke 16, verses 10 through 13 was one of the first passages that I studied and learned, and it had an impact on me. Jesus speaks very radically here, but there are important things for us to hear. The passage is Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. It is Jesus' application of the parable of the unjust steward. But listen to what verse 10, Luke 16, verse 10 says. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That that first verse of that passage there just blew me away because in my prayers, I have been asking God for blessings, and I promised, Lord, if you bless me, I'll show you how faithful I am. And you know what he says here in Luke 16 and 10? If you a crook with a little... If I can't trust you to do right with a little bit, I can't trust you if I give you more. Verses 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, that's just a word for money, who will entrust you with true riches? This verse also blew me away because Jesus says, if I can't trust you with with something like money, how can I trust you with true wealth? That 11th verse is big because Jesus is clearly saying there, money is not true wealth. The poorest person in the world is a rich man who all he has is money. The most important things in life, friends, are things that money cannot buy. Verse 12, Jesus says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The bottom line is in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The bottom of verse 13 says this. This is what you should remember. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus doesn't say you cannot have God and money, but he says you can't serve them both. You must serve God with Money. Money is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. And debt makes money a master rather than a servant. Larry Burkett says it well. No one 
who is financially bound can be spiritually free. So first of all, debt is owing more than you can pay. Secondly, debt is a spiritual matter. But thirdly, debt is not necessarily sinful. Debt is not necessarily sinful. For everything Scripture says about debt, it is clear that debt is not to be normative in the life of the child of God. The Bible consistently talks about debt in negative terms, but the Word of God never calls debt a sin. Debt is dangerous, but debt is not necessarily automatically and inevitably a sin. Those who claim it is often appeal to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So people claim Romans 13 and 8 and says, All debt is wrong because the Bible says, Owe no one anything. That is a big statement about debt, but it's not so much about debt. It's not about money as it is about relationships. Let me give you the point of Romans 13, verse 8 in four words. Unpaid debts ruin relationships. Yes? Unpaid debt ruins relationships. That's why pretty much throughout my life, I have made it a policy never to loan money. If I cannot give it to you, without an expectation of getting it back, then the answer is no, because money, unpaid debt can ruin relationships. You know how you feel when you're around people that owe you money. You become their secret financial advisor, and I don't care. You could be at McDonald's. And they'd be like, I'll supersize them. And you'd be thinking, how are you going to supersize them fries and you owe me money? Right? You'd be like, wait a minute. And you know how you feel when you are around people that you owe money to. Unpaid debts ruin relationships. And what Romans 13 verse 8 is saying is that you should not allow money to ruin relationships. Christians shouldn't let money come between us. But it doesn't teach us that all debt is wrong. In fact, there may be times where it is appropriate to acquire debt, but there are some big questions you should ask before getting into debt. Here's the first I would say, three big questions. Number one, does it make economic sense? There's a long argument I have here, but let me just summarize this. Let me just summarize this by an example. In most instances, the average person will not be able in our daytime and culture to purchase a home by paying for it outright with cash. Some Christians would say, therefore, you should never purchase a home if it means you incur debt. But in many instances, that's, that's the most conservative, radical Christian standpoint. Most Christians who talk about these subjects regularly would say that as a house is something that appreciates over time, it could be a wise investment. It can make economic sense. You must be careful of 
becoming a victim of predatory lending practices. Be careful about those TV preachers. You know, and Lord's going to bless you to get a loan that you ain't even qualified for. To get a loan that you are not qualified for is not a blessing. Hello? It is not a blessing to get more house than you can take care of. Also, the same is true of churches. I was not here when this room, this building we are meeting in was built. But this was a prayerful corporate, God-led step of faith. Debt remains here because of unforeseen circumstances before I and many of you were here. And that happens in life. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this was a wise investment, and only in heaven will we know how many lives have been changed because of the step of faith this church took to build this place of ministry? There are those that argue, well, church should not just, you know, there are churches that first save up all the money and then build a building, and that's a wise thing to do. But I'm, I'm just arguing it is not necessarily wrong for a church, for instance, to incur debt responsibly to build a building or to acquire a facility as we were led to do in our merger with the church in Orange Park that has made us one church in two locations. And I think God is honored by the step of faith that we are taking to try to retire this debt so that we can move on to other things that God would have us to do. I've never said this publicly. When I moved here seven years ago, the church was about a year away off from a balloon payment that it was not able to pay. And because of the crisis this church was in, I've never seen a bank ask us to go somewhere else, take your money somewhere else. That happened to us. No, the church, no one wanted to touch this church. And God worked it all out. I said God worked it all out. Our pastor of Christian education was the lead pastor at our Orange Park location, the previous church that met there. He could tell you of times where the financial leaders came in and said, we will not get through the next months. And even though it was not the way they planned it, God worked it out. So there are times where it makes not only economics, good economic sense, but good God sense to take a step of faith. The second question I would ask is this, are you, if you are married, this is for the married folk, for just a moment, are you and your spouse united? Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, cling to his wife, cleave to his wife. The Hebrew word literally means glue yourself, brother, to your wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. Marriage is the God-ordained and lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. 
Your marriage is your most important human relationship. Nothing should loosen the bond between a husband and wife. In Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus says, well, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Yet statistics report that half of all marriages end in divorce. And reports further claim, whether true or false, that the divorce rate among Christians is no different, basically, than non-Christians. You be the judge of that. But I submit to you, Satan only has a few good pitches to strike out marriages. And Satan's fastball is dispute about money. I know sexual immorality may be the most obvious marriage breaker, but you would be surprised how many affairs even happen because of pressures in marriage over finances. One simple way to guard the intimacy of your marriage is to determine not, hear me, determine not to make any important financial decision if you and your mate are not on one accord. I'll take that cheap clap. That may be the best I get today. But for real, if you get married, it's no longer my money and your money. When it's my money and your money, you are giving, you are placing in the devil's hands a tool to wreak havoc in your home. If that's a cat you can't trust with money, that may be a sign you shouldn't get married. But Larry Burkett said, well, it is very dangerous for a husband or wife to ignore the primary advisor the Lord has given him, a spouse. Your spouse is the primary advisor God has placed in your life. And, and let me add one more thing here. God does not give you a mate to fulfill you. In fact, to seek fulfillment in anything but God is called idolatry. God gives a mate to sanctify you, not fulfill you. And, and sanctification often requires people in your life that rub you the wrong way. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the soil of difficult relationships. And the sanctifying power of Christian marriage is experienced when wrong, foolish, and self-centered money decisions are prevented by your spouse's wise objections. Are you and your spouse on the same page? Third major question I would commend to you is this. Do you have spiritual peace about the decision? Church, God leads by giving and withholding peace. God restrains us. By causing restlessness, God guides us by giving peace. Early in my first pastorate, I was going through a bad time, and the man in Detroit that I was preaching for the week my dad died was retiring, and he, he extended an invitation for me to come and be his successor. You don't have to stay there and put up with that. You can come here. It was a much better job. No vote, no meeting, no interview, no discussion, no fights. All I had to do was pick up my phone and hit 11 buttons 
and say, I'm coming, send me a ticket. And there are many mornings I woke up and all I wanted to do was make that call, but the Lord wouldn't let me. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? I mean, he just wouldn't let me pick up the phone and hit 11 buttons. And I'm glad because, listen, at this point, I'd rather be in a storm with Jesus than in calm waters without him. <laughs> but I'm saying God has a way of guiding by, by the, the giving and the withholding of peace. This is not the only indicator you should consider because our sinful hearts can deceive us. Jonah was going in the wrong direction, but he slept peacefully in spiritual rebellion. So be careful. There are other factors. But Colossians 3.15, that's the verse you should get. Colossians 3.15 teaches, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And the word rule there was a term used for one, a, a referee or umpire, as we would call them, that would officiate over an athletic event. He is saying, let the peace of Christ be the referee when you are making big decisions. So, a pitcher throws the ball. The hitter calls it a ball. The catcher calls it a strike. But the referee says, it ain't nothing till I say what it is. And in a real sense, this is how Paul is saying the peace of Christ should operate in our hearts as we make financial decisions. And he ends Colossians 3.15 by saying, and be thankful. One way to know that the peace of Christ is ruling is that there will be a spirit of thanksgiving, not anxiety. In fact, if I can just give you a blanket principle, you shouldn't be doing anything that you can't thank God for. The proverb says, the blessings of the Lord make one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The way you know God gave it is that when God gives it, he'll give it and let you enjoy it. He adds no sorrow to it. Number four, debt is not wise. Debt is not wise. Debt is not wise. The Bible does not call debt a sin, and there are times when debt may be permissible, appropriate, or understandable, but though debt is not necessarily sinful, the Bible consistently teaches that getting into debt is not wise for several reasons. Number one, this is the big one, turn to Proverbs. If I had to give you one verse to hold on to about debt in the Bible, it is Proverbs 22, verse 7. Proverbs 22, verse 7. Turn there with me. I just want you to lay your eyes on this verse for yourself. If you don't memorize or remember any of the other verses, and I hope you will, this is a core statement about what the Bible says about debt. I would also note as you're turning there that the previous verse, verse 6, says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. How do you do that? Just Interestingly, the next verse says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. There are two facts of life there. The first one is this, money is power in our culture. 
Money is power, and with it, the rich, rich people rule over poor people. The poor people are prone to borrow money to level the playing field with rich people. But borrowing money only puts the poor deeper into the grips of the rich because the bottom of verse 7 says, the slave, the borrower is a what? Slave to the lender. Now, in Bible times, if I owed you money and I couldn't pay, a judge would make me your slave until I worked off the debt. But that is not what the proverb is saying here. The proverb is not saying that debt can put you in danger of bondage. The writer here says, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Debt is enslavement. It's bondage. Debt restricts. There are some of you here, maybe many of you here, who would probably say, I'm a homeowner. But of those who would make that claim, many are mortgage payers, not homeowners. Who really owns your house? Miss a couple of payments. <laughs> You'll find out. This is my house, okay, just don't pay the mortgage and you'll find out whose house it is pretty quick. I mean, m most of us here have cars, few of us here own cars. Many make payments on cars on, in the hopes of one day owning that car. And the examples abound. And all of these, I believe, are examples, illustrations, or evidences of bondage. There are places you want to go that you cannot go because you got bills to pay. There are things you want to do but you cannot do because you have bills to pay. It's folks that are not here this morning because the Jaguars were going to be on TV this morning. But if the Jaguars were playing at 9.30 on Monday morning, <laughs> come on now, you'd be like, uh-uh, them Jaguars ain't paying my bills. I'm going to work. <laughs> right? I'm not a smart man. I've never figured it out. You wake up on Sunday morning and it's raining. You can't go to church because it's raining. You wake up Monday morning and it's raining. You get your rain boots. You find your umbrella. You get your overcoat and you go to work anyway. Right? Your choices, your relationships, your priorities are shaped because you got bills. I'm talking to some of you. You hate your job. And I'm putting it lightly. You hate it. 
and, and, and you, 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 you just want to tell them, take this job and shove it. And then you check your mailbox. And then you say, I think I'm going to hold on a little while longer to see what the end's going to be, right? There are some who withhold giving from God to pay bills. If that's not slavery, I don't know what is. Debt is not wise because it is enslavement. Likewise, debt presumes on the future. Debt presumes on the future. Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. Right? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We are weak creatures of the moment, and we don't know what the future holds. So we should live contingently, not presumptuously, because you don't know the future. Don't boast. You don't know what the future holds. You turn on the news and you see storms taking down cities and houses and communities. That could be our city. It's not because we're better. God has just been merciful. Don't boast. There's an accident on the freeway, and you're frustrated because it, it's making me late. But you should stop and think. You're not, it's, you don't get from A to B because you're such a master driver. It could be you. It could be me. Don't boast. There are people more educated, more qualified, more experienced than you are in their field of expertise, and they have been looking for months for a job, and you go every week, I, we go to jobs that we don't appreciate, and not thinking about the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. Don't boast about the future. You don't know what tomorrow, well, I'm, I'm a praying person, and I'm close to the Lord, for real, so is Job. And when he came back from prayer, he lost everything in one day. Don't presume on the future. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead of boasting about what you're going to do, this is what James says, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we would live and do this. In fact, that's how my daddy taught me to talk about the future. God willing, I'm going to so-and-so tomorrow. God willing, next week. Yes, that's, that's, how, that's how you live contingently. 
because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. It is dangerous to presume on the future. The safest place in the world is in the will of God. And you don't want to be hanging out in the suburbs of His will. You want to be downtown Main Street in the middle of the will of God. Likewise, debt is not wise because it robs God of the opportunity to work. It can rob God of the opportunity to work. Do you know, church, that I don't care how dire the situation is, if you trust God, He can work it out. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. God is worthy of your trust because if you trust Him, God will intervene for you. That doesn't mean, that doesn't guarantee He'll move when you want Him to, where you want Him to, how you want Him to. But if you trust God, God will meet your needs. How? I don't know. But I'm not anxious about that because how is not our business. How is God's business? You better just make sure you trust the who and let that God handle the how. I've found encouragement meditating on 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. You don't have to turn there, but you should read that story later. It will bless you. It's about a widow in debt. It wasn't because she done, did wrong. Her son or her husband, 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7, her husband was one of the sons of the prophets. That just means he was in school studying. He was in theology school learning to be a preacher. He died. He had debts. He was taking care of his debt, but he died, and the debts couldn't be taken care of. So the creditors came to this widow's house to take her children, her two children, and put them into slavery. She went to Elijah and asked Elijah for help. Elijah represented the presence of God as his prophet. And when she went to Elijah for help, <laughs> Elijah seemingly asked her a crazy question. She is broke. She has nothing. Her husband is dead. They're coming to take her children. And Elijah says, what do you have in your house? And I'm not sure if she is responding sarcastically. She tells him, all I have is a little bit of oil in a jar. He said, I'll tell you what you do. Go get your sons and go to all your neighbors' houses and get every bowl, every pot, every vase you can get. Get as many vessels as you can. Go in your house and pour that oil in those vessels. And as crazy as it sounds, she did it. And she poured that little bit of oil and filled up a whole vessel. And then poured, kept pouring, and it filled up another pot. Kept pouring, and it filled up another pot. And they kept handing her pots, and she kept filling up the pots with the oil until one of her sons said, this is the last pot. And she said, I guess that's enough. Let's ask Elijah what to do now. And Elijah says, take those pots, pay your debts, and watch this. Live off the rest. I believe that story. 
And further, I believe God can take a half-empty jar and make an oil business. He'll, he'll make a way out of no way to take care of you if you just trust God to work. Likewise, debt is not wise because it displays con- discontentment. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, write down the whole passage. But the core of that passage in Philippians 4, 10 through 13 is Paul's big statement. I have learned to be content in whatever state I find myself in. Church, God will open doors for you. But do you know that God that opens doors sometimes closes doors? He closes doors to teach you how to be content. Some of us think you got to be at a certain place to be happy. You have to have a certain thing to be happy. You got to be with a particular person to be happy. And God wants to rob you of that folly. You'll never be happy anywhere until you learn how to be happy right where you are. And if you ain't happy by yourself, you'll never be happy with another person. God wants you to learn how to be content. He wants you to learn how to be content. And sometimes he's got to close doors to do that. Let me tell you, out of my own experience, I'm not quoting Scripture now, out of my own experience, you better be careful about telling God what you can't live without. Because God, like, be writing that down and like, for real? Let me see. And he snatches it away and say, now what you going to do? God closes doors to teach you contentment. And when God is teaching contentment, he will not let you ditch class. He will make you stay in your seat until you learn to be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Fifthly and finally, the fifth principle from Scripture that I want you to leave here with is this. Debt must be repaid. Really, I'm going to be honest with you. I went around the corner just to go across the street. Really, I mean, you, you could summarize what the Bible says about that two ways. Try to avoid it at all costs. And then on the other hand, if you get into it, pay what you owe. Write down Psalms, Psalm 37, verse 21. Psalm 37, verse 21 says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. Wicked people don't pay their debts, not Christians. Wicked people do not pay their debts. Proverbs chapter 3, write it down. Proverbs 3, verse 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you. You know what that means? 
That proverb means this. Righteous people don't make creditors chase them down. They're not hiding from creditors. They deal with debt honorably because it is their intention to repay. Even if it means that you have to downsize the way you live, debt must be repaid. How do you get there? Several principles. Let me give them to you quickly and we'll pray. The first thing is give to God first. Wait, what? What? Yep. Give to God first. But what if I cannot afford to give to God, HB? If you are in debt, friend, you cannot afford to not give to God. Debt is often rooted in a failure to put God first in your life, and you can't fix a problem and perpetuate the problem at the same time. How do you get out of a hole? The first thing you do is stop digging. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is God's affirmative action program. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Do you believe that, church? Overcoming worry about financial matters in your life only happens when you put God first. And you ought to put God first in your finances because everything you possess belongs to God. That's the first principle of Christian stewardship. I'll give it to you in four words. God owns it all. They did an accounting of God's bank accounts and left on record what God possesses. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and everybody in it belongs to God. God owns everything. We own nothing, not a house, not a car, not a toothbrush. It all belongs to God. I won't argue it. I'll just warn you, God knows how to show you and make a believer out of you. Everything we have is just a gift from Him that we are to manage for His glory. And faithfulness to God starts when you give back to God. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing, and your vats will be filled with, with wine. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits. Everything comes from God. No, 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 H.B., you don't know. I work for this job. Okay, you work for that job, but what if God don't wake you up in the morning? What about that? I mean, everything is from God. You mean everything comes from God, and when He blesses you, you pay everybody and then give God something if you got left over? That dishonors the God that gives us everything. Secondly, you should guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is the wellspring of life. What you think, say, do, choose, feel, all that flows from what's in your heart, the seed of personhood. Uh, um, the, the old folk used to say, what's down in the well or come up in the bucket. 
So if you're gonna if you're gonna fix problems, you gotta start with the heart. And, and again, First Timothy chapter six verse ten says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is evil. Money is not evil. Money is neither good or bad. It is morally neutral. What is good or bad is your attitude toward money. And what Paul is saying, the most dangerous thing that can happen is that you fall in love with money. Don't let your heart fall in love with money. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your what? Heart be also. Guard your heart. Here's another step to work your way out of debt. Live within your means. Larry Burkett, he's a blessed memory that's moved upstairs, but anything written by Larry Burkett on financial management, I would read. I would start with his book, Debt-Free Living. If I would recommend a book, it's an older book, but I don't know if it'll, you'll improve on that. He said when he first began advising people about stewardship, he met a couple and they needed help desperately. They said, we don't have enough money to live on. How much money do you make? $15,000. He added up their expenditures and they were right. They didn't have enough money to live on. Then he met with another couple, same problem, they said. How much do you make a year? $25,000. He added up their expenditures. They didn't have enough money to live on. Then he met another couple, same problem. How much do you make? $75,000 a year. But he added up their expenditures and they didn't have enough money to live on. And he drew the conclusion that the problem with each couple was their attitude toward money, now not how much money they made. He even suggested that if the $15,000 couple swapped salaries with the $75,000 couple, they would initially think they were rich, but in a year or so they would be in the same financial difficulty because I'm going to say this sentence slowly so you can write it down. No income is enough if you do not live within your means. You never make enough money if you don't live within your means. You don't even need to write, read the Bible. That You just see it everywhere, right? Celebrities and athletes with and singers and movie stars, and you hear about these big contracts, and then you hear they filing for bankrupt, and you be like, that singer, I bought all your CDs. How can you be broke? I spent, all, I spent my money on you. Because it doesn't matter how big, the, it could be a multi-million dollar contract, signing bonus, more money than you would ever dream you'd make, but no amount of money is enough if you don't live within your means. Best way to live within your means is to live on a budget. Budget. I don't know where my money went. You, you know how to deal with that? You, if you don't want to lose your money, learn to tell your money where to go.
Proverbs 27, verse 23 says, know the condition of your flock. A shepherd takes care of his flock by knowing how many sheep are going in and out. And you need to, I would just say, start with a 30-day ledger. What are you bringing in and what are you spending out? Just get a look at what you are bringing in and spending out. Know the condition of your flock and then set a plan for spending your money wisely. Giving to God, saving money, paying your bills, helping others and preparing for the future. And, and stay out of a consumer mindset. You know what a consumer mindset is? Consumer mindset is when you spend money you don't have for things you don't need to impress people you don't even really like. Don't purchase anything that you didn't plan ahead to buy. It's like one practical reason Crystal like barred me from the supermarket. I just, you just got to get it all. And she just went in there for one thing. Don't, don't buy impulsively. And be careful with credit cards. I turned 18 on a Monday. I moved out on my own that Saturday. You couldn't tell me I didn't have it going on. Got my own place. And then very soon after, what reinforced it is that I checked the mailbox and I started getting these letters with like these notes on it just for you. <laughs> you are a special recipient of our credit card. And, and I was like showing them my friends. I was like, look, man, they sent this to me. And I was just blessed to have good people in my life that said HB. That's, that's a trap. Do not apply for those cards. And I look back and tell you, I never, I never miss anything living without a credit card. I'm telling you, the coolest thing in the world is for them to ask, how are you going to pay for this? And you look them in the face and say, cash. Don't be tricked by credit cards. They are not your friends. If you're going to use them, be careful of perceived plastic prosperity. Only use credit cards on budgeted items. Don't use them on consumable items. Pay off your credit card every month. And when you can't pay it, stop using it. In fact, I would recommend some family to go home today. Some, listen, friends, some of you today need to go home and have plastic surgery. <laughs> today. You just need to go home and have plastic surgery. You get all them cars out of your wallet, out of your purse, that are just getting you deeper and deeper in debt, and you get your scissors and cut them up. The first way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. And then just develop a repayment plan. You will not get out of debt automatically. It will not be easy, and it will not happen overnight, but you should have a plan. Could I just recommend Dave Ramsey's snowball, debt snowball strategy? 
If you're in debt, Dave Ramsey and his total money makeover just recommends that you should start by saving $1,000 that you can lay aside for unexpected emergencies. And then you list out all your bills from the smallest to the biggest, not including house payments. And you just start on that first one, that smallest bill, it's $100. And you work on that bill until you've paid it off and then celebrate and then work on the next one till you pay it off and celebrate and work, until there's a snowball effect that leads to debt-free living. Final word. I said the Bible doesn't say much about debt, but the word is used a lot in Scripture, except most of the time it's not used to refer to money. It's used to refer to sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a debt. God is holy and we are not. We will have to answer to God for how we have lived our lives and all of us fall short of his righteous standards and we don't have enough to pay for the sins we have committed against God. Jesus in the model prayer teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sin is a debt that you owe to God that you cannot pay. The bad news is in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. God does not judge us by giving us a bad day. The, the payment for sin is death, and all of us deserve it. But Romans 6, 23, says, though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God demands righteousness and then he gave what he commands. He responded to debt with a gift. He sent his only son to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died so that those who run to the cross and trust in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ can have their debt of sin removed forever. And if God can do that, He can do anything. Praise God for His work. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For contact information, ministry updates, as well as our live Sunday morning broadcast, please visit us online at shiloh.church. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.